Good morning, St. Barnabas. This morning we'll be reading from 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. First Kings chapter 11 verse 1 reads, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart to other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Shemosh, the detestable god of of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, And you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you. I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning, church. Lovely to see you all this morning. And a particular welcome to Raymond. It's good to have Raymond back with us. Where is he? I can't see him. Oh, he's gone next door. Anyway, it's good to have him back with us. I gather Alita is making good progress. Hopefully she'll be with us by next Sunday, but do please keep her in your prayers. Then uh, this coming Wednesday, we have our monthly prayer meeting. Uh, Do please remember to send me your personal prayer requests. I think it is one of the great privileges of church family life to be able to pray for one another in an informed way, so don't forget to do that. And then lastly, um, you'll know that the title of our series is King Solomon's Mind, 
And uh, today we um, conclude our series in one, well, this part of the series in one Kings, because for the next three Sunday mornings, we're going to be focusing on some of the things that Solomon wrote, we're thinking about his mind. So we've got two Sunday mornings in Ecclesiastes, one Sunday morning in the book of Proverbs, and next Saturday morning, as a special treat at uh, Gift and Portia's house, Gillian will be uh, giving an introduction to the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, under the title Best Song Ever. So I do hope you'll come along for that Saturday morning, 10 o'clock, at Gift and Portia's home. Well, I think I should really apologize to Seb and Ruby for um, uh, preaching on this passage on uh, the time when we've been celebrating their marvelous engagement, and here's Solomon making complete hash of things. So I am sorry about that. Um, Anyway, we'll do the best we can. Please have the passage open, and uh, I'll pray. Well, Lord, as we come to this ancient text, we remember the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy that all Scripture, including 1 Kings 11, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the men and women of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we pray, Lord, that would be our experience by your grace this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, during his lifetime, uh, Solomon was the world's richest man. Uh, For a number of years, he was the world's wisest man. But uh, this week, we see him as perhaps history's most foolish man. Uh, He was the man who had everything and lost everything. I guess to have all the glories of the kingdom for such a short time doesn't count really for very much, does it? Uh, No one wants to simply touch greatness and then let it go. People want to achieve it and hold on to it. And in the case of Solomon, we've had this amazing window, haven't we, into his astonishing prosperity and success. So two weeks ago, we learned that everyone in Israel was happy under his kingship, and for a time, living in Israel was rather like living in paradise. But it didn't last. Uh, The wisdom, the prosperity, the kingdom, the happiness, all of those things turn out to have been very short-lived. And when they had gone, the tragedy of Solomon's fall was worse than if Israel had never seen the glory in the first place. Well, this morning we're finding out how it all began to unravel. And in some ways, I guess it's a very familiar story, a painfully familiar story. Because we often read, don't we, about people who have achieved astonishing success in some area or other, business or sport or whatever it is, But then suddenly, almost overnight, they lose everything. And in Solomon's case, it really was a tragedy. He was a great, wise, wealthy man. But he became foolish. And he lost everything. How did it happen? 
Well, our passage says that Solomon made two mistakes, a big one and a small one. I want to show you that these mistakes, uh, what these mistakes were, and I also want to show you that they were closely connected. And I want us to see that this wasn't some kind of random mistake made by somebody who lived a very long time ago that doesn't really apply to us. No, it's very much, I think, a word for us this morning. So, first of all, let's look at Solomon's big mistake. Let's start there. Uh, It is repeated endlessly in the passage Ruby read for us. So glance with me at the end of verse 3. The end of verse 3. His wives led him astray. Verse 4. His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Verse 9. His heart had turned away from the Lord. I don't know about you, but I think it's almost beyond belief, isn't it, that this great man, endowed by God, with tremendous wisdom, should now abandon his trust in the Lord and turn instead to other gods, that he should turn away from or fall away or betray his creator. And uh, it's not as if the gods that he chose were especially nice or attractive. He actually went for the worst possible alternatives. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, and uh, Solomon apparently built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and another one for Molech. Now those names, of course, mean almost nothing to us, but they were the gods of the tribes living around Israel. And the archaeologists tell us that these tribes would sacrifice their children to these gods in order to win their favor. And these were the gods that Solomon chose in preference to the one true God who loved him and gave him everything. It's almost inconceivable, isn't it, that someone so privileged, someone so blessed, could do something so indescribably stupid. And because it's so absurd, it's very easy, isn't it, for us to sit here and think to ourselves, well, you know, (laughs) this would never happen to me. And as I think about it, I, I think it is pretty unlikely that anyone sitting here this morning would suddenly decide to turn their back on the Lord Jesus and take up another religion. It's not impossible, but I can't imagine it, and I don't suppose you can either. Which means, of course, that we need to look at the small mistake or the lesser mistake that Solomon made because it's altogether more ordinary and altogether more possible for us. What was Solomon's small mistake? Well, look at chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. 
uh, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Uh, now, these were not merely political arrangements. You, some of the commentators think they were. They weren't. The text very clearly says Solomon loved these women. Look at the end of verse 2. End of verse 2, we're told that Solomon held fast to them in love. Now, you can't get around that. It means that he met them, he got to know them, uh, he fell in love with them, and in due course, he married them. Now, admittedly, of course, Solomon does this on an extreme scale because we're told that he had 700 wives. Uh, towards the end of the chapter, we discover that Solomon reigned for 40 years. And if you do the arithmetic, that means Solomon had a wedding every three weeks. Uh, if you've ever been involved in planning even one wedding, you know just how much goes into all the preparations. No doubt Solomon, I guess, reached the point where he had procedures in place. Uh, to make sure that everything went smoothly so that the cake and the flowers uh, arrived on time, every time, and so on. But you know, that's an awful lot of weddings to organise, an awful lot of weddings to attend, an awful lot of wives to look after. So yes, Solomon goes to extremes, but the essence of it by which I mean to be romantically interested in someone, uh, to become attached to them, and in due course to get married, is something that all of us can understand, especially this morning as we were listening to Seb and Ruby. But here's the problem. The Lord had commanded Solomon and the other Israelites not to enter into marriage with people from these very specific nations. Look at verse 2 again, verse 2. These women were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them. Now, if you want to look up the Old Testament background later, then can I recommend you look at Deuteronomy 7, and Exodus 34, that's Deuteronomy 7, 1 to 4, and Exodus 34, 11 to 16. Those are the places to go and check it out. And you'll see that uh, when you look at those verses, that these weren't simply prohibitions for the king marrying wives from those countries or those tribes. No, the prohibition extended to everybody. God said, you mustn't intermarry with them. Why not? End of verse 2. They will surely turn your hearts after their gods. In other words, God said, don't marry people who don't share your religion. Don't do that. Why not? Well, because you will be uniting your life at the deepest level to someone whose life is going in a fundamentally different direction, who doesn't share your priorities, and who worships different gods or idols. God says to do that is a recipe for disaster. Because if you do, 
they will turn your heart away. So the interesting thing, I think, about the the two sins, the two mistakes that Solomon made is that they are very closely connected. I don't know whether you've ever played the game of dominoes, but uh, if you have, you'll know that if you stand them up and you flip over the first one, well, the next one inevitably comes crashing down. And that's what God is saying here. He's saying, if you marry them, they will turn your heart away. Well, quite clearly, Solomon didn't believe the warning, did he? So just look in your look carefully in your Bibles at the progression between verse 2 and verse 3. So middle of verse 2, God says you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Verse 3, he had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and the result was his wives led him astray. Now, you see, the point is that's not a surprise because God said it would happen. So can you see that the ordinary, or we might say perhaps lesser issue of marrying the wrong kind of person inevitably triggers the the massive abandonment of God in favour of the likes of Molech and Chemosh or whatever it happens to be. God promises that's what's going to happen. He says, Solomon, if you do X, then Y will surely follow. Don't do X. Now, we're not told in the passage what was going through Solomon's mind when he did this, but I guess he was thinking something like this. Uh, I'll be fine. Uh, I'll be careful to make sure that uh, I remain fully dedicated to the Lord. Uh, You know, I know that uh, Sandra from Moab has her own heritage and she has her own cultural background, but I'm not going to become a Moabite. I'm simply marrying Sandra. And uh, I'm going to invite her to come with me to the temple from time to time. And I'm going to be praying for opportunities to talk to her about the Lord. So yes, I know God has said there's a risk, but I'm going to be careful. And you can trust me because I'm wise. I'll be fine. But of course, after Sandra... Uh, There was Julie from Edom and Claire from the Hittites and so on and so on and so on. It's almost, isn't it, as if Solomon was calling God's bluff. You know, Lord, you've given me a warning, but you don't need to worry about me. Uh, I'm different. I'm going to be okay. But of course he's not. And notice that it's not a slow, gradual falling away from the Lord. All it takes in the text is just one verse to tell us that Solomon is not okay. He ignores the warning, and what God says will happen, happens. But just look with me at verse 4, if you will, because there's an interesting detail here that I missed the first time I read the passage. It says that this turning away from the Lord happened when Solomon grew old. 
Now, reflecting on that, I think it seems that what happened was that these marriages had been going on for a very considerable period of time. Well, they must have been, because there were so many of them. But, so all of this must have been happening while Solomon was building the temple. And also, when he was going to the temple to worship. So, alongside the public face of Solomon the devout worshipper, there was Solomon the compromiser in the area of personal relationships. No one really paid much attention to it at the time. And isn't it interesting that the writer of One Kings has deliberately reserved this particular aspect of Solomon's life to the very end of the story, even though it was going on all along. And maybe the longer it goes on, Solomon was able to convince himself that, you know, it's going to be fine. He may have said something like this, I've, I've lived with this compromise, I've worked it out, Yup, there was this very scary warning from God, but it turns out that it didn't really apply to me. I'll be okay. In fact, the consequences are horrendous. Verse 4, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And Solomon, who built the temple, becomes an idolater. He falls away completely. He becomes a pagan. And in verse 9, God is angry. The way that verses 9 to 11 are written, I think, are telling us that God's anger is entirely appropriate. God is not here being unreasonable or vindictive. God has every right to be upset. Just look at it with me, verse 9. Verse 9, very striking verse, I think. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. (laughs) So this is someone who's received not just one, but two personal encounters with the Lord God. What an astonishing privilege. And now Solomon just throws it back in God's face. More than that, we're told in verse 10 that God had commanded Solomon specifically about this particular thing. God said, Solomon, I want you to be really, really clear that you have got to be faithful to me. There's to be no turning aside to fake religions. But, I mean, Solomon ignored it. And verse 11 spells out the consequences. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant, uh, covenant here means the the relationship with me. Covenant is a bit like a, a marriage relationship, a marriage contract, if you like, that spells out the terms of the relationship. Solomon, you've torn that up. You've ignored it. Uh, You've not paid any attention to that or to my decrees, which I commanded you. I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. 
And I think as readers, I think we feel at this point, well, fair enough, fair enough. You know, that God who had been so, so gracious, so, so clear, so loving, so generous, but had had it all thrown back in his face, should say, Solomon, it's over. I'm angry with you. The kingdom shall be torn away. And yet having said that, uh, the sentence when God pronounces it sounds rather strange to us, I think. Uh, It's fair and just, but immediately God qualifies it, doesn't he? By being surprisingly kind. Uh, It's rather like, I suppose, the judge in the high court saying to the prisoner who's been found guilty of treason or murder or whatever it is, I'm sentencing you to life imprisonment, but uh, you can live in a really comfortable cell. Uh, If you need anything, just ring the bell, we'll bring it to you. And you can still go on holiday and you can have all the visitors you like. That is kind of the sense, I think, in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So can you see that even as God judges Solomon and spells out the consequences, God remembers his promise to David that there would always be a son of David on the throne of Israel. And he also remembers that Jerusalem is the city where the temple is and that God has promised to hear the prayers of his people when they pray towards the temple and ask for forgiveness. So so God says, for the sake of David, my servant, and Jerusalem, I'm going to spare one tribe, the tribe of Judah. I just point this out to you because... I want you to see that God's judgment does not mean the cancellation of God's promise. God's promise still stands. But you know, friends, it's a terrible sadness that although God has made this wonderful provision for forgiveness through the temple, which we looked at last week, it's a great sadness, I think, that there is no indication anywhere in 1 Kings that Solomon ever asked for forgiveness or repented or asked for God's mercy. Well, let's draw all this together and uh, ask, well, what on earth does all of this mean for us this morning? Uh, Solomon, of course, was a very particular individual. He's not every man. He was the king of Israel. You and I don't have that position. And he was the direct heir of God's promises, the ruler of God's people. And yet, of course, what he did would be a mistake for any Israelite. Uh, We saw that at the beginning in those prohibitions I mentioned in Exodus and Deuteronomy against intermarriage. That wasn't just for kings. It was for all Israel. If you forge intimate relationships with those other peoples, they will turn your hearts away. Don't do it. So yes, Solomon has a high-profile role that we don't share. 
But friends, when we come to the book of Nehemiah, we find very interestingly that the lesson of Solomon's mistake is applied to all Israel. Which means, of course, that we can apply it today to any Christian believer. So I'd like you to travel with me, if you will, please, to the book of Nehemiah. If you need some orientation, you go beyond Kings to Chronicles, and then you'll find Ezra and Nehemiah after Ezra. Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and I'd like you to come to chapter 13. Nehemiah, chapter 13, almost at the very end of the book, verse 23. Just give you a moment to get there. Nehemiah, chapter 13, verse 23. Nehemiah says, now this of course is the exiles, isn't it? These are the people who uh, would have read 1 Kings. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Now pay very close attention. Verse 26. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? It's the domino effect again, isn't it? You know, when the first domino topples, the second one is definitely going to fall. So if you make moral compromises in the area of relationships, your faith is going to suffer. You can't avoid it. It may be that it only happens years later, but it's what God promises. So heed the warning of Solomon. And if you're a Christian here this morning, don't form an alliance, a marriage alliance, or any kind of intimate relationship with someone who does not share your trust in the Lord God. And in case you're wondering, the New Testament says exactly the same thing. Uh, 2 Corinthians and Ephesians are just a couple of examples. Don't pair up like this because there'll be consequences. And I wonder, I wonder whether some of us think, well, you know, Lord, I don't believe you. I think the compromises on the small things are okay. And I'm sure that it will never actually lead to a compromise on the big thing. Well, Solomon thought that. 
quite clearly he was wrong. And God said he was wrong. But what about those people who find themselves married to someone who doesn't actually share your faith in the Lord Jesus? Uh, Fairly normal situation. Perhaps both of you were unbelievers when you got married. But somewhere along the way, the Lord Jesus broke into your life and now you are a believer. What does all of this mean for you? Well, there is wonderful, wonderful comfort and reassurance for you in the Gospel. And so as we close, I invite you please to turn to the New Testament and to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, in uh, this section of the letter, uh, Paul is talking about people who got married before either party became a Christian. And uh, we're going to pick it up at verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. The apostle says this. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. Now, pause on that. Don't turn away. Because we first need to understand what Paul does not mean. Paul is not saying that once one partner has been converted, that the unbelieving partner is treated by God as if they've been saved. That's not what he means. It's not what the word sanctified means in this context. Rather, the idea is that the believer has a a sort of moral and spiritual influence on the unbelieving partner and on the children. More than that, actually, the obedience of the believing partner in staying in the marriage and witnessing to other members of the family by their changed life means that in a very real sense, the rest of the family are set apart by God as a very special object of his devotion and care. So it doesn't guarantee their final salvation, but the the life and the witness of the believing partner is used by God to give the other members of the family every opportunity to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something actually that Gillian and I experienced in our own marriage. Um, It just so happened that um, uh, I was led to Christ a few years before Gillian, and I, I don't doubt for a moment that my own witness was patchy and flawed very much B minus. Nevertheless, nevertheless, 
God did use the changes in my life in a very practical way to gently draw Gillian into the kingdom. Um, How? Well, the books, the sermons, increasing contact with other Christian people, all of that was used by God to help her in her time, God's time, to make a decision for Jesus. And in that sense, although she wasn't immediately converted when I was, God from that moment, as it were, put the spotlight on her and he sanctified her, which means that he set her apart for special treatment. Now, it may be very difficult to stay in a marriage when your partner is a non-Christian. There might be persecution. It might be extremely painful at times. Uh, There may be times when it's difficult for you to come to church. It may be difficult for you to bring the children to church. But you see, what we're being told here is that God delights to honour the obedience that is willing to stay put and witness as best you can in those challenging circumstances. That pleases God. Uh, And as Paul says, just look at verse 16, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 16. Have a look at it. How do you know, believing wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know believing husband, whether you will save your wife. Lovely, isn't it? Now, the only reason that could happen is because the Lord Jesus is the king who is not like Solomon. He's always wise. He always does great good to people. In fact, the the ministry of Jesus, as we find it in the Gospels, is very much like Uh, 1 Kings chapters 1 to 10 without chapter 11. Because Jesus never compromises. He never sins. He never ignores God's warnings like Solomon did. And his heart is never turned away. Now you see, he is the king whose heart is always faithful to his heavenly father. And he leads those who trust him to be faithful to the Lord. And very wonderfully, he is the king who brings marvellous mercy and grace into our lives. Why? Because he is both the true temple and the true sacrifice and the true atonement for everyone, everyone who comes to him in faith. So to anybody uh, here this morning or listening perhaps to the talk online who says, Lord, you know, this is an area where I have really, really messed up. Could there possibly be forgiveness and a fresh start for me? And the Lord says, yes, of course, of course. Sadly, Solomon never asked for it. But if we ask for it, he will most certainly give it to us. So shall we pray together? Father, we do thank you for all that was glorious in those early days of Solomon. But we lament that they didn't last. 
we lament that he ignored your clear warnings and the terrible compromises he made that led to such a tragic fall. We pray for anybody here or anyone we know who might be making similar compromises and who might be thinking, well, there'll be no consequences for me. Lord, help them to hear this warning before it's too late. How we thank you for the son of David, the son of Solomon, who was as glorious as this king, but never foolish. We thank you for Jesus, his justice, his rule, his righteousness. Thank you that he never turned away from you. And thank you for the mercy and grace that he offers to those of us who've made all sorts of mistakes in our relationships. Help us to come to him in faith, in our times of need. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.